Welcome to the Parenting Cipher, where each episode will give you the tools and resources to help your child thrive in school and in life. Please rate and review this podcast. I'd love to hear your feedback. And also hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. Hello, hello, everyone. So today we have the authors of Do Right By Me, Catherine and Valerie, and just a little bit about them. First of all, they're good, good girlfriends. That's the main piece. They're good, good girlfriends, and you already know. Supporting each other and raising not just a child, but raising everyone's child. Because this book is not just about Kathy's adopted son, Gabriel. It is about all our children. And Catherine holds a doctorate degree in education. And she and her husband are white adopted parents raising a biracial son. And unlike some white parents who subscribe to a colorblind or post-racial ideology, Katie and her husband confront head-on the reality that they would need to equip their son for an experience far more complex than anything they had experienced. And you will hear all about it in this book. It's the bomb.com. Now, <laughs> Valerie, who is, you know, the other mother of the community, has a law degree and a doctorate in African American studies. She is an attorney, educator, and served as acting president of Lincoln University. Come on now. The first degree granting historically black college or university in the United States. And this is Val's second book. Her first is called Color Him Father. Stories of Love and Rediscovery of Black Men, which was published in 2006. See, now, Val, see, I wrote this, you know, I copied this. I didn't read it. I got to get that <laughs> book, too. First of all, let everyone know what this book is about. Katie, do you want to start? Or? Sure. Okay. Sure. Right. Well, I mean, first of all, thank you so much for inviting us to participate and sharing us with your community. We're a huge fan of yours as well. So <laughs> thank you for this opportunity. What's really easy for me is to talk about Do Right By Me because it's a labor of love. The motivation for the book is my son, who is now nine years old. And if you meet Gabriel, you will understand how he can have this effect on you. <laughs> When's his <laughs> birthday? September. Mm-hmm. I know. I hear that too. They're like, oh, and he's a Virgo. That explains so much. But he is just as extraordinary as he could be. And as you said, you know, Mike and I, my husband and I are both white. Gabriel is a beautiful biracial boy who we adopted from birth. And exactly as you said, you know, Mike and I knew early on that we just could not afford to subscribe to a colorblind or post-racial ideology, specifically because that was not what was best for our child. And we also knew that we had to learn faster than maybe an ordinary pace because it was our job to understand the reality that would be ahead of our son and to equip him for an experience that was clearly far more complex than anything we had experienced. And the great gift, one of the many great gifts, is that we were not alone in that. Even before we knew about Gabe, his aunt Vaval and I were in frequent and deep conversations about all that would be necessary to parent a child of a different race. And knowing aunt Vaval, this was more than her sowing her wisdom into me. It was the beginning of her sowing wisdom into our future family. So the process for writing this book turned out to be more than I could have dreamed. It really was a process of self-discovery for both me and 
and my husband and very much about developing relationships. You know, Jeannie, there has been pushback over the years against transracial adoption, white families primarily adopting black children. And so the research emerged that told us that transracial adoption in and of itself is not harmful to children. However, black children do best when they have positive racial identity, when they feel good about being a member of their racial or ethnic group. Their achievement and their well-being actually depend on it. So on the other hand, confusion about racial and ethnic identity is linked to behavior problems. It's linked to psychological problems. Mm -hmm. Also, we learned that the well-being of Black children is tied to their ability to deal with racism. So the takeaway for us is this need to be intentional about helping Black children develop positive racial identity and then equipping them with life skills to navigate racism, whether the parent is Black or white or of any race or ethnicity. And so this book shows parents why the skills are necessary and then how to go about cultivating them. One of the things I loved about the book, first of all, is like your relationship. Like when we started, I think like the beginning, it may have even been the preface. And Val asked Katie a question. <laughs> she asked basically, it was like in her face, like, so when someone comes to you and they ask you, like, why do you have this black child or your child's face was racism? What are you going to say? And I was like, ooh, that's a good friend. But, mm. and I started to wonder, I started to think to myself, like, you know, I used to be one of those people like, I don't know about you know, why people adopting black children? Because it's like, can you give the experience? But then the other part for me is they deserve to have family. It's the most important thing is family. But as I was reading the book, this book speaks to more than like Val said, it speaks to more than just a family adopting someone who is not their race or biracial. It speaks to the issues that any parent needs to address. Yes. Yes. To raise a confident child. Yes. You know, so I have my favorite chapters. In chapter three. Oh. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna so chapter three is called Too Great for Hope. Okay. And in this chapter, Katie was discussing that. Because one thing that's awesome about this book is that it's two authors. But for every time that Katie is speaking or Val is speaking, they put their pictures. These characters, they're so cute. So you know exactly who's speaking. So, you know, Katie starts talking about, she discusses social exclusion. And she basically also talks about how discrimination or perceived discrimination plays key into ADHD, ADD, oppositional defined disorder, anxiety, and low self-esteem, which when I read it, I was like, okay, so this is validation for what I already thought. But- when you start talking about social exclusion and you talked about how it is a physical manifestation. Yes. Yes. For children. Can you talk about that just for a minute? So imagine not only you are a different race, you also have a learning difference and you know you have a learning difference. So it is an exclusion within the exclusion that even when the school is trying to create this inclusive, it's like I said, it's so dynamic, inclusive relationship with a child who doesn't know how to step into this space, they mm -hmm. still exclude them. And this is why I was like, can you speak to it for a minute? Because this is tiered. And a lot of parents and a lot of educators don't understand that kids with learning differences who are Black, it is like a double social exclusion that they're dealing with. Yes. It kind of takes my breath away too, because thinking about everything that you just described, we talk about a very specific experience with Gabriel when he was four. And, you know, the quote that always resonates with me is, 
we took our son to play soccer for the first time. And of the, you know, hundred or so people on the field, he was the only child of color. Now that's including coaches, parents. And so to have your four-year-old child recognize in that space and in that moment that nobody else looked like him, it is. It's definitely a lot to take in. And as you pointed out from that chapter, and it's part of why we organized the book the way that we did, that we understood that we had personal stories to share that could maybe illuminate some of these things. But, you know, Val and I both, we've gone through a doctoral program and we both work in higher education. So we also have the privilege of being regularly engaged with research and science, right? And people who think about the science and research of these things all the time. And we wanted to make that through our stories, but also backed by the research to make that more accessible. And so when we say there is a science to this and that exclusion has this very real impact on a child and the way we've described it is that whether you are punched in the stomach or you just do not feel as though you are a part of something, it is enough to have this effect on you. And it has the effect of real pain, physical pain to your body. And that's how it operates inside the body. So this isn't just, you know, you look around and you don't feel like you fit in. It's bigger than that. And that everyone on the field, again, we're talking about an adorable four-year-old child who barely fit into shin guards, right? Everyone on that field went out of their way to try to make Gabriel feel connected. And, you know, they want to just come and play. The volunteer father coach said, I'll hold your hand. Just, you know, come on out here. Everyone fell over themselves to make him feel connected. However, the folks on that soccer field didn't have to set out to exclude Gabe. Mm -hmm. You know, exclusion doesn't need to be practiced in order to be felt. All they have to do is connect with the people that they feel most kinship with. Like we were talking before, right? Like attracts like. Mm -hmm. You're going to be naturally drawn to people who look and feel like you. And in predominantly white spaces like that soccer field that day, it is unlikely to be Gabriel. So he is going to feel left out. Again, it's hard to say this as a mother because for Mike and I, it was probably our first sense. It was the first time we ever felt what it must be like to not look like anyone else in a space. We've had our entire lifetime in predominantly white spaces and never noticed it. So we really wanted to drive home the point. Inclusion is not the absence of exclusion. Mm. It is its own practice. So for anyone, because y'all know, because I'm introducing this book, because I want everyone to go out and get this book. So this book is also story-based. So it's not just the kind of book where it's just like, what these are our studies. It's a story. So it always ties into real life experiences. And when I read the story of him on the soccer field, what stood out for me was, ooh, my children probably feel that way in school. And I, that's something I can't connect with because I've never been was raised in Washington, D.C., native. And I've always been in education spaces with other people of color. But I was blessed with parents where 
I had a very strong agency, presence of agency. I love history. So I knew my history as a Black person. I knew all the contributions. So when I did stuff in a space that wasn't predominantly Black, I was always confident. I never had the space where some of us do want to admit it, some of us don't. They feel intimidated when they're not in a space. So if you're an adult and you feel that way, how do you think children feel? And I never actually thought about it until I read your book, until I read that chapter. And I was like, oh, wow, this is something to reflect on. Yeah. I mean, and if I can just add to that too, again, part of the research early on in this book, and Val alluded to it, this is the reason why in 1972, the National Association of Black Social Workers were clear on this. They pushed back about Black children being adopted by white families. And for these two clear reasons, one is that They did not believe that white parents had the resources to develop and nurture positive racial identity in a child. And then part two, that they would be equipped to prepare their child for what it would take to survive and thrive in a racist society. Now, how I understand that even more in this conversation about inclusion and exclusion is that as the white mother to my Black son, it is clear to me that white parents must want to teach and show their child how to develop positive racial identity and how to effectively cope with issues of race and racism. And what we know is that whether the parents are white or Black, we know that Black children thrive when their parents do this. Mm -hmm. However, as a white parent, for over 400 years in this country, white people have not been expected to acknowledge racism, let alone consider that it might have an effect on the life of a Black child. So here's part of the challenge in this is that for Mike and I to walk onto that field of 100 white people with our child, we were aware of it, we've observed it, but we have no idea what that feels like. And so you're right. Like when you say as a parent, okay, I've never had to experience that discomfort. So you not only don't know that it could be having that effect on your child, but the other side of that is, okay, a child has not yet formed agency. A child has not yet developed the skills. And so for some of the adult transracial adoptees that we've read, Chad Gullier Sojourner is one of them. You know, he says all the time, if anybody's going to be uncomfortable, let it be the adult. Like, (laughs) right. If anybody is going to be tested on their level of comfort and ease and feeling a part of something, feeling belonging, let the adult deal with that. Right. Not the child. And Katie and Mike went and found a soccer team that was predominantly black for Gabriel. I have to say, this had everything to do with Aunt Vival because as soon as, right, as soon as, as soon as Gabe said, nobody on that field looked like me, I immediately needed to process this with Aunt Vival, Dr. Harrison. And she just took it in stride. She said to me, well, okay, let's get to work. Let's find the space where he will feel that connection, that immediate connection and that sense of belonging. And, you know, one of the other things, it's like a bunch of things, but when I read that chapter, it was the way that you both worked on creating a space for Gabe, the vulnerability of you and Mike to step on a field or step into a space where you are now that minority and be uncomfortable versus Gabe being uncomfortable. But to see her in a black church, Jeannie, oh. that's, that's the real 
comedy. <laughs> Talk about discomfort, right? So, but that's the learning. That's the lesson. Someone has to be uncomfortable, and they have said we will be the someone. And so, but yeah, you there is. You'll see there is a part that we do talk about that. There are spaces where you're going to be uncomfortable. Um, yeah, and yeah. But who's going to be uncomfortable? I like I like the way you right said that. right. It's better for the adult to be uncomfortable than the child. Absolutely. Because you're creating their agency and their awareness of self. And, you know, just to transition, you know, Val went into, in her part of this chapter, she started talking about negative images for Black children. And for me, it was like a combination of like the space that I've created in the last season. And I just like, I think this week we talked about diversity, but the way you talked about the social images and how it feeds into the self-hate, it's like thoughts that have been rolling in my mind. And I always had that one question, like my son, because he went on his little, everyone knows Zay. So, you know, Zay likes to, he goes on his tangents and he made a comment, you know, what he can't stand the most is black people who hate other black people when we all look alike. And Val speaks to this in this chapter about how... Well, why am I telling them? Go ahead, Val. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I am very concerned. You can see from part of chapter three about the threat to the development of positive racial identity again. And I'll go back to the main premise of the book is how critical it is for parents of black children, black parents or white parents mm-hmm. to do everything possible to ensure that their children develop positive racial identity. And they never feel like they're just a failed effort at being white. And Katie makes the point in the book that if we don't intentionally work on constructing a positive racial identity for Black children, the culture will create a negative self-identity around their Blackness for them. And so images, negative images, distorted images are one of the biggest threats to the development of positive racial identity. And so the chapter, I'll give you the short version, talks about how during slavery and Jim Crow and, and oppression and inferior treatment of Black people was, and it continues to be justified and fueled by portraying Black people as inferior, as portraying Black people as dangerous, as threats, and then conveying those images in as many outlets as possible. So if you portray a group's members as savage or dangerous. It's easier to justify savagery and violence against them. And it's unbelievable, but some in the contemporary media still play a significant role in perpetuating negative images of Black people, overrepresenting them in stories about crime and poverty and underrepresenting them in positive stories about leadership. And so to Zay's point, it's more difficult to connect and empathize with people if you can't see their contributions, if you can't see their value. And so many of the media images also perpetuate a myth that behavior like laziness or lack of discipline or immorality and not racism has produced disadvantage and poor outcomes for Black people. And so these negative, distorted, and imbalanced images create perceptions of Blackness that influence a person's behavior toward Black people. So experiments confirm what we know is that white people are more likely to shoot an unarmed Black male than an unarmed white male. In addition to that, this goes again back to Zay's point, there's a danger that we internalize these negative images. The research tells us that the more Black people ingest negative media images of themselves, 
the lower their self-esteem. And when a Black child sees negative images of themselves, there is a real and substantial risk that they'll copy the behavior. And so the negative impact of the distortion is magnified if the Black child has little or no real life experiences with Black people to provide counter images. So what our book does is to provide a range of recommendations for helping Black children challenge this threat and develop positive racial identity. Everything from limiting exposure to negative and distorted images to saturating Black children with positive and balanced images of themselves. And so we confront and we counter the negative images with a knowledge of Black history, of Black culture, of a legacy of resistance and resilience. But again, the takeaway is to never allow a Black child to feel that they are a failed attempt at being white, but to understand that they have an equally rich and valuable identity. You got to take a breath on that one. Because and you had it, to notice, and I want to go back to a point that you made earlier, Katie, and I laugh about it now, but the book does open with a question that you posed to Katie about transracial adoption. She could not answer that question. Right. Um, you hear now she can answer that question with power and with authority and with confidence. And so part of our message is that this is an evolutionary process. We have to give each other room to grow and to learn and to develop. I mean, you know, nobody comes to this together. Nobody comes to the parenting thing, knowing everything to do. But you can see the difference in chapter one and what you hear today. But that's because there is some intentionality around being the kind of parent that we believe is best for Gabe. Creating a community around him. I just say like, Y'all, both of your relationship is beautiful because one, you can be honest. We do tend to, for me and my friends, I always ask them, do you want me to tell you the truth? You want me to tell you what you want to hear? Okay. <laughs> I don't want our relationship to be ruined in any way. And I saw that you asked her the question. I felt for you, Katie. Oh, thank you. (laughs) And not saying that Val was wrong because she was right. She was right. Yep. It was the space of when someone asks you something and you don't know, you know, you should know, you don't have an answer for that. And you're like, that space is that time when someone asks you something you're like, okay, I don't know. I don't know. And then you realize that you have to go find an answer and you had a beautiful friend to help you with your discovery. And, you know, with all the things that you go through, I mean, you know, what's the other chapter, ladies, because, you know, we talk about these chapters and the people. (laughs) (laughs) And chapter, well, okay, so we're not going to give everybody all the tea, but. We're going to talk two more chapters. And one was Blackout. And Blackout was just important to me because it touches on the conversation of children with special needs and why they are not diagnosed early. Why, you know, a lot of times you're kind of like pushed to the side. There isn't any conversation because you don't know what to ask. And in this chapter, you know, Val just talks about when she had to go to the hospital concerning her cancer and how she knew between her and Katie, they knew how to advocate. They knew what words to use. Because it's not just going into a space saying, I know you can do better. You have to have the language. You have to But you know what was scary to us, Sheenie, is Mm -hmm. the notion that if I took Gabe to the emergency room, let's say I was watching him and he had a sprained ankle or had a stomach ache. If I took him or if Katie took him, the research said that the care that he would get would not be the same as a white child. That Mm -hmm. freaked us out. The same way when Katie read the research that said my baby actually experiences physical pain from exclusion that she would have never known. Those are the things that we said, are you kidding me? 
And so we then had to be intentional about developing strategies to deal with that. And so advocacy in healthcare is one, but you're right, pushing for testing, you know, low expectations of teachers of Black children. You know, we talk about that, not testing children, tracking them in certain ways. Those are the things that as a white parent, you never really think about, or you think that having a white parent will compensate for that. The research said no. The Black child, even with a white parent, is going to be treated differently. And that was just eye-opening, I think, for both of us. But it is eye-opening because I would have thought, and in the chapter, I was like, ooh, yes. Yeah. You know, especially yeah, when, yeah. you know, sometimes when we talk about ourselves, there's a space of what I can endure. When someone says your child, it's like, oh, no, mm-mm. Why should my child get less than? Why would he get less quality of air yes. to breathe than a white child? And you don't know to ask why, you know, why is it possible that children, you know, black children with appendicitis right. more likely go longer with it than yes. a white child. And when I read it, I was like, I didn't even think of those things. So this is my go-to ladies. I just don't go to certain <laughs> hospitals. <laughs> yeah. I live in D.C., so I remember when I was like in my 20s and I got in a car accident. For people who are not familiar with D.C. on Georgia Avenue, there's a section of Georgia Avenue, just all Howard University, their hospital, their school. And I got an accident on Georgia Avenue and they put me in the ambulance and I kept saying, don't take me to Howard. (laughs) (laughs) Don't take me to Howard. Don't take me. I remember sitting in a hallway on this gurney with the IV in my arm. I don't know how long I was there. I was, you know, I had a cut. It was bleeding. And I literally laid there thinking, I'm going to die because they brought me to Howard. And back then, I used to watch like, you know, ER, all those TV shows. And I like sci-fi, so you know it's not a good place. So I was like, (laughs) the IV is going to get empty and it's going to be air in there. And then I'm going to (laughs) die. Like, I know how the character dies. I know. Right, episode. Right. It's here in the IV. And, you know, my mom comes and she starts advocating for me. Like, why is she laying here? Why, you know, she's bleeding? Why, you know, why, why, why? And after that, whenever I have to go, I always take my kids to a certain hospital. I go to a certain hospital. But that's that Val spoke to that in the chapter when she said, this is something that I have. And then I had to come up to an understanding. Like they said, I'm able to advocate. I have friends that are able to help me advocate. And what can I do for everyone? How can I help everyone when it comes to these issues? And like I said, I've read it and I was like, okay. But as soon as you say, what if Gabe? I was like, oh, yes. What if it's exactly. my what if it's my son? Like, what can I do? Because that is why a lot of African-American children, it's not just in, you know, academic spaces and health spaces, but when we talk about learning disabilities, it's both spaces. So even if you have a diagnosis, most often no one will tell you about the specialist. Sometimes your general practitioner is trying to help. No, mm-mm. general practitioner is trying to handle your child's ADHD. No. Mm-mm. Well, and if that is manifesting in the classroom as behavior that is being handled in a disciplinary way versus this is a child that's struggling and needs mm-hmm. help, needs support, needs resources. And again, while this may not entirely be a race element, here's where it is. 80% of the teachers in the United States, public school teachers are white. So when you have white teachers that have had a lifetime of experience of what it's like to be a white person in predominantly white spaces, and then they are the ones who are teaching 
right? They are the ones that might be the medical provider. They're not only having to undo a lifetime of how they view and interpret things, but also we're asking them to pivot now and understand how their biases are deeply affecting how they teach, how they provide care, right? And if you don't have this awareness of what is implicitly, like what is happening in how you're thinking and treating people, it's not going to be handled in a way that best serves the child. It's not, but it's also, you have to, just like how you have to be aware, everyone needs to be aware. And you also have to, because look, unless I'm reading this book, I know you're like, this girl, I am a reader. I love to read. And I'm going to be honest with both of you. I have not read academically for a while. So for me to read a book and be highlighting it like crazy and want to read it is me just a good book. Oh, that is really, <laughs> it's a, I mean, it's everything. Good. It's very, very significant. We appreciate that. More it is, you know. it's not just an academic piece. It is a story. It is. And that's why we've got your book, Not My Child, that's on my list now. Thank you. Because you're right. Like to think this is a point that Val and I come back to all the time. Mike and I talk about this all the time. I would love to believe that I would be who I am today, reading what I'm reading, thinking about what I'm thinking. I would love to believe that this process of self-discovery and understanding this would have happened whether or not I became the mother to my son. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that it would have because, again, there is something about that relationship. You are compelled to do this work because it's your heart and soul. And, you know, that's the motivator. And I'm good with not having that question answered because the greatest gift in my life is my son, right, is Gabriel. So I'm okay that, yes, I am motivated to do everything that I'm doing for him. But yeah, the notion that there's a lot of white people in this country that can keep on doing what they're doing, it's sad, but that is our reality. And then just being able to embrace that. I think we all have our biases. I'm going to be honest. Like At first, I was like, I don't know why. I don't know if I'm, I feel, you know, I feel like those kids are going to get what they need. But it's a space of not are they going to get, because you can be with a Black family and not get what you need. It's about where's the space that's going to support the child the best way that they need possible and what kind of groups. And that's like, I don't know. I'm not going to act like I remember these groups because I remember different things. But <laughs> there was a part where you pack. Is it packed? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Adoption, the Adoption Alliance. Alliance. Yeah. Because there's one part of the book where we talk about taking care of his haircut. Yes. And the whole experience is as I'm reading the book, I'm like, now this whole relationship that Katie and Val have. We had more of it because I know sometimes I see parents like they're probably biological parents. They may not even be adoptive parents and their child is biracial. And I'm like, what's going on with your hair? I told Katie, I told Katie, I said, for black <laughs> women, tell her, Jeannie, when we walk in the mall and we see it, we have this compulsion that we almost want to snatch the baby and comb, we comb do. his or her hair and we'll, then give, give, give the them baby back, back to and you. Give them back. And I feel like I don't want to offend like when I see it because I know you don't know. Like this is my theory about people. You know, because my major is sociology. My theory about people is when things don't make sense, you create a story for you to make sense. So my story always goes something like, you don't know. So you must not have any Black friends or people of color or someone in your life to say, here is a hairstylist. Or this is how you should take the care. Because even as a woman of color, and I have a little girl, she's not a little girl anymore. I had to do a whole hair thing, even though I know how to take care of hair. 
but I was doing the natural hair thing. Her hair is different texture of mine. Her hair is like curly wavy. You know, you know what I'm talking about, about that hair. And we'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. lucky you got that good hair. That's Gabe's hair. Yeah. That's Ian's hair. Right. <laughs> it's like, thank God he has good hair because it could bear me. <laughs> And it's just when I read about Pat and when I read about the relationship, that's one of the things that stood out for me was the possibilities. And we hope you got the point. You know, conversations about race and culture can be difficult, but we speak in two separate and distinct voices because we want to also make this point. A white or European worldview, the, the history, the perspective, culture, body type, hair texture voice is just one among many. It's not universal. It's not the standard. It's not entitled to supersede others. And so we try to make the point that for many white people, they see their way of being and seeing things as a universal standard. And what we're trying to demonstrate is it's simply not, and it's not always the best. It may not be the wisest in particular situations. And so conversations about race and culture can be difficult. And so over the years, Katie and I have learned to disagree in a way that's not fatal to the relationship because we're committed to keeping the priority the priority. And that's our friendship and that's Gabe's health and his welfare. So you're right. While we agree on most things, we disagree on his hair, right? And so, you know, Jeannie, you know the deal. When a little boy gets one or, or you know, maybe two now, you, you go to, and you get a haircut professionally yeah. done, right? At a barbershop. And it's a ritual. It's a, it's a thing, right? And, and the barbershop, actually, I am a lot older, but in my generation, it was actually a place that was much more than a place where hair is groomed. It's a place where stories were shared across generations, where dreams are developed and, and encouraged. And, and Katie's position simply was that Gabe should have more freedom in terms of his hair. And while I am part of her village to support her and to be a resource, at the end of the day, she's his mother. And that is her decision. But with that being said, he, she ultimately cut his hair. So I won at the end of the day, Jeannie, but it took seven years, right? Or six years, I guess, after. Yeah, because I, I think I started around his first birthday. I'm like, oh, you ready? And she's like, no, nah, I'm not going to do it. I was like, wow, we, what are we going to do? But it is a process. But it has to be one of, again, of respect and understanding. Look, she's the shot caller when it comes to that. We are here to support and to be a village that is part of his nurturing. Well, look, Val, I, look, I totally understand. I think my kids got a haircut round one, and they have the same hair texture as their sister. So it's that wavy, curly, you got a yep. little boy. And you understand this one, Kate. You have a little boy, but everyone's like, oh, she's so pretty. Right, oh, right. My God. Oh, yeah. And whenever right. they said that, I'm like, well, you can you, he doesn't have girl clothes on. It's like, <laughs> like me, it's a boy. And it's like the hair is the hair, you know, and- so we cut the hair. But what I found about the barbershop is one, because I'm a single mom. So one of my challenges was like, we wouldn't go often because they have sensitivities. And, you know, one of the things that barbershop can bring to your child is the conversation that you can have with the barber. And he explained to yeah. me, he was like, you have to be consistent, sis. He was like, you have to find, he said, in every barber is not for them. He was like, find one that they click with. And yep. he was like, bring them, like create a schedule. And when I started to do that, then, you know, it wasn't a bunch of like resistance around getting the haircut. Zay will tell you real quick, it's getting too long. It's touching my ear. I don't like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I want to go to the barbershop. So it is, it is a culture. Like the one they have now, he's awesome. Like he has his own space. He has video games. But the most important part of it is he gives my boys conversations. Yes, yes. Yep, exactly. Yep. You know. 
And that is, you know, one of the mainstays of creating that identity with kids is giving them a voice, stopping and listening to them. Like that's one of the things I always tell, you know, parents is, are you listening? Are you stopping? Are you listening? Are you still doing what you want to do? You still on your phone? Are you really listening to what they're saying? That gives them a strong sense of identity. Yes. And give them a voice. And that's what you want to do because like, you know, Val and I were talking before, you from a generation where it's like, you're seen, you're not heard. Right. That leads to a bunch of insecurities that we have as adults, even though, even, and you know, I always I always say like people, we're creatures of habit. You know, do we really change? No, we don't. What changes our awareness of the things that we're doing. That's what changes. And as soon as you know, oh, I'm doing it again, then you can stop doing it. But one of the things that I've been like really keyed into is don't tell him to be quiet. Let him talk. I have moments where I'm cringing as he's talking to people on Zoom. Like, oh my God, we don't say that out loud. <laughs> but I let him go. And that's that part of that self-identity, you know, advocating for themselves. It ties into confidence when you're always telling a child to be quiet. It literally is like if it was a foundation, you're taking like little chips. You know, you're creating these cracks for someone else to feel. So before we leave, so there's two things we have to do because I have to talk about this education piece because I keep looking at it and I'm like, oh my goodness, because that's what I'm all about. Right. Education. So Katie, because I didn't get to read the whole story. When you look at schools and you're looking at teachers, because I have two questions. So first one is to Katie, what are you thinking about? Do you have conversations with your teachers when you see certain things? Absolutely. You know, we do spend some time, we not only dedicated a chapter to talk about education and how as a parent to your primary job to be an advocate for your child in the education environment, but it also comes up in other chapters as well for all the obvious reasons because of the effect of so many of these things on what are traditionally thought of as academic outcomes, right? So we've had a lot of engagement and we talked about this before our session today. What we have found is that we as parents have needed to stay on top of everything. And that began with what was the criteria that we were looking for in a school? And it just so happened, Gabriel, when he was two, we started looking for a nursery school because there are not children his age in our neighborhood and he's an only child. And so that social engagement was really critical. So we started looking at schools when he was two, which seemed crazy to me at the time. But what we found was that as we were looking for schools, we did decide to go the private independent school route because, again, as we've talked about, what was essential was that Michael and I could fight for <laughs> everything we knew that our child needed to be supported and nurtured and developed. And unfortunately, we knew we could not afford to risk being one voice in a crowd. We wanted people, we wanted the captive audience and attention of somebody oh. who oh. needed our tuition dollars as well, right? 
the point of the education chapter was to give parents really sort of some very practical suggestions for being an advocate for your child, even to the point it's if, if you need to engage an education lawyer to perhaps do that. Katie challenged the administration at the school to say, we are watching each year the diversity numbers in Gabe's class. If this thing starts to go a different way, then we're going to pull him out of here. We're looking to see how many teachers of color you have, how many Black male teachers you have in the school, and sort of hold them to that. And so the point of the chapter is one, to help parents be vigilant around issues of low teacher expectations. For example, we know that white teachers have lower expectations for black children, but also that black children are disciplined differently than white children. Behavior that is seen in white children as excitable or rambunctious is seen often in black children as threatening and not just among Black boys, but among Black girls. Actually, the data tells us that Black girls are suspended at higher rates than girls of any other race or ethnicity and most boys. And so we want parents to be vigilant around those issues. But then again, giving very specific suggestions and tools to advocate for curriculum that reflects an accurate Black history, not one that began in 1619 on the shores of Virginia, but that one that helps a Black child understand that his or her history begins on the continent of Africa as the developers of great civilization. That makes all the difference in how a Black child sees themselves. And so those are the things that we try to deal with in the education chapter. So let me ask you this. For a Black parent who reads this chapter, (laughs) I'm going to be devil's advocate, and says, okay, well, Katie can do that because she's white. Yeah, she can do that. (laughs) Because Val actually spoke to this in the beginning of the chapter. I did. When she said that we see it almost as a privilege to push back. She doesn't know any other way. You know, the interesting thing is when Katie said to me, well, I wrote this nasty note to the principal. Look. And I was like, oh. <laughs> you know, she never thought she never thought of another way to do it. There's a chapter about Katie being in a recreational space, a play space. And Gabe did not meet the height requirement. And so and the notion that they said, oh, well, he can't ride because he's not tall enough. She was going to turn the place out. Right. And so we talk about the concept of privilege and privilege allows you or motivates you to do things that you wouldn't ordinarily do. So this helped her to see her privilege actually more clearly, but also to sort of manage that in a way that Gabe's not hindered by it, right? So the concern was, you don't want teachers to take out on Gabe the fact that they can't say anything to his mother, right? And so Mm -hmm. those are some of the strategies that we talk about in the book, because it's a balancing act. That's not always clear. But two things just to sort of echo exactly what Val is saying is, number one, yes, Val really drove this point home to me very clearly when she said, it may not have ever occurred to you as a white woman to not confront this issue that you're having head on. But what you don't have is an awareness of how that blowback will affect your Black son. And that took my breath away because she's absolutely right. So it's all in how you... Right. It's all in how you do it. It's not to say that you aren't an advocate for your child. Exactly. But sometimes the way in which you do it, you have to be cognizant of that because there is an impact on your baby that you just didn't anticipate or think about Exactly. Before. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm laughing at both of you because I am that parent. 
you know, and I'm a writer, so I'll write a letter real quick. Um, <laughs> exactly. And, and, That's and my I, coping I mechanism. And I don't know about you, Val, because I my son, he says this to me. He's like, you know, mom, that letter was real passive aggressive. So I, <laughs> I'm like the master of passive aggressive. So it's like, I want to create a situation where we're working together, but at the same time, I want you to be aware that maybe you're not aware of what's going on and how you're treating my, at this point was my daughter, how you're treating my daughter because of either, I told myself, it's either her color or it's the fact that she's here on scholarship. Yeah, so you're right. let's talk about it and being very clear of like, you know, I do, I don't know if you got this one, Katie, but I do this conversation with my daughter. It's like a follow-up to see if there's any pushback, but it's like yeah. the way I would ask questions like, so how was your day? Did someone so say something to you? Or, you know, what happened in the class? We had a situation where the teacher told my daughter to shut up. Oh. But here's what's interesting about this story. I took it as you're doing it to my daughter because it is a prevalent white school, private school. You're just telling her because she's the person of color in the room. So, you know, I kind of like really laid it out nicely. But apparently she was telling all the kids to shut up. But here's what's really great about this situation. It empowered my daughter. And it empowered her and made her gain confidence in herself because what I created with her is an understanding that you can tell me what's going on. We can talk it over and then I will follow through in a way that empowered you. The teacher came back and apologized to her in front of the class. Wow. All of her friends, all of her friends was like, oh my God. Yep. She apologized to you because she had been telling, it wasn't just a situation of my daughter. She was telling all of the girls. (laughs) Just shut up. But apparently after that conversation, the teacher stopped telling all of the kids, all of the girls to shut up, which we all know shut up is is like, no, but. Right, right. That advocacy piece. So I want you guys to leave them with, if you were to give one tip, like I've read several chapters, but if you were to give three steps to parents, what would it be? One thing, a word that Katie uses is this is hard work. And so parents have to be intentional about identifying, again, their biases, but also doing the work of recognizing what's going on around them. They have to understand how racism continues to operate in the lives of Black children. So the colorblind ideology, the post-racial ideology does not serve Black children in this time well. And so our goal is for parents to actually commit to doing the work, to learning and understanding. I know that most parents have a general awareness of what racism is, but what our book tries to do is move them to the next level of understanding how it continues to operate in the lives of Black children. And then with that information, they are equipped to nurture positive racial identity and to help their children navigate racism. So that would be one. Katie, I'll pass off to you. And building off of that, I think it is doing your own work And so doing your own work, it's some self-reflection to understand, you know, where am I in all of this? And chapter two is the race history of the United States, because if you don't understand your history, you won't understand how it's playing out in our education system, in our healthcare system, in our criminal justice system. You know, so if you don't know your history, you are destined to repeat the same mistakes Mm. over and over again. And yes, we will find ourselves... Dr. Eddie Glaude tells us this in his book, Begin Again. We will keep coming back to these crisis points in this country if we don't look at our history, own it, take responsibility for it, and make different choices. And so do we want to be 
again, and where I started just researching for this book and the driver for this book, it meant everything about defining the type of mother that I wanted to be to my son. And that has informed everything good in who I'm becoming. So that's tip two. Do your work. (laughs) (laughs) And I think tip three, I think young people do more of what they see you do than what you say they should do. And so we also advocate for adults to leverage their strengths and to actually engage in work for racial equity within their particular sphere of influence so that we're raising a generation of young people who understand that their individual achievement is most significant if it translates into progress for the entire group. And so our suggestion and our effort is to encourage and to motivate adults to actually engage in the racial equity work where they can and where their strengths lie. I love it. So of course it's Decipher and it's all about the music. (laughs) It's not all about the music, but that's the part where I find joy and make everything a little bit not as heavy when you're advocating period. You know, you need to have a little bit of pump up. So I always ask people, what's their favorite hip hop song or song in general? And Val said, Gil Scott Heron saved the children. Yeah. So I was like, what? (laughs) Not like in a bad way because I love Gil Scott Heron, but I was like, I know that one. (laughs) So I went and played and I was like, oh, that makes sense. I'm an old person, so I'm sorry. I know you asked me for my favorite hip hop song. I said to Katie, "Does she know I'm an old person?" So you know, you, you asked me my my favorite Curtis Mayfield or you know Gil Scott Heron or Marvin Gaye. I could do that all day. Or Earth, Wind, and Fire, you know, uh, Stevie Wonder. I can do that all day long. So I'm sorry. No, no, um, no. So it's supposed to be or a song that empowers you. It says hip hop yes, song or yes. song that empowers you. Because that's what it's about. It's about the song that you play when you have to step into a space. It's about the song that inspires you when you're doing something. You know, it's like the notes kind of lift your spirit when you're dealing with things that aren't always sweet. And it also takes you back to those good times. And most often I pick songs that's like, oh, that was like a great time. That's like they say, when you're under stress, this study was done for teenagers, but I believe it's for everybody over the age of 16. Mm -hmm. everybody teenager but they say that when you are having hard times you will find yourself watching tv shows that used to watch as a kid Mm. music at a certain period of your life because it increases your endorphins and makes you feel good you know my brother he always says that he said the music that you you know we're we're jazz heads right and he said the music that you're hooked on at 14 or 15 is the music that stays with you forever so that's why when i said earth wind and fire and i said gill and others like that that's the music that was popular when we were teenagers and that was uplifting and so you're right we always return to it you do you do like I like me yeah. some, what is it? I don't even know who sings it, Rock Creek Park. So, you know, I live in D.C. So Donald Byrne, you know that, Donald yes. Byrne. So whenever, Byrne, whenever, that, whenever I go. students at Howard at the hospital where you. <laughs> so whenever I go through the Rock Creek Park, I'll be like, Rock Creek Park. Doing it in the park. Yes, exactly. Right. And it's like you said, with the same thing with the jazz. My dad is a jazz head. So I grew up listening to Book of Washington. You yes. know, those rare people. And I have my albums. Like, those are the albums that I chose to listen to. And those are the songs I listen to the most. So it's not just about hip hop. It's also just about the music. But on that note, I wanted to tell you, ladies, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jeannie. For stepping into the cipher and really helping us understand transracial adoption. But more than that, how we can, as a people, grow, support our kids, but at the same time, create community with families. It's not about race. 
It's about the mission and the child. Yes. And that we're all in this together and that it's the work that we do together that will move all of us forward, not just the individual. So let's not stay in our pockets, you know, reach out. Yes. <laughs> reach out. Don't be scared. If you see someone who has a black child, maybe their biological child, maybe their adopted child, start a conversation. Yes. Hey, girl. How you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Because everybody needs a Val or a Katie in their life. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't be siloed in our thoughts. Like I said, this was eye opening. I appreciate you both coming on the show. I'm glad that your book showed up in my email. And I'm going to tell you, ladies, I don't respond to everybody in the email. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Jean. Well, and thank you for inviting us into your community. I think we're all better for it now. Thank you so much for listening. If this content is delivering value to you, please subscribe and go to wherever you listen to your podcast and give us a five-star review. That helps us build this community. And that's what we're all about, building this community as big as we can to deliver as much value as we can. The Parenting Cipher podcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company and the executive producer, myself, Jeannie Dawkins. Until next time, remember to be patient with yourself and your child.